Uh, good evening, everyone. Welcome. Um, this is the last meeting of 2012, the, um, not the last of our current session, I'm happy to say. And it's a great pleasure to um, um, introduce Maria Alvarez, who would, would have given her paper last year, I understand, um, but we're having the pleasure of it um, this evening. Um, Maria is um, at King's College London, and her, the title of her talk is Agency and Two-Way Powers. Are you hearing me all right? Yeah, yeah good. Will you be OK? Uh, I hope so. Can okay. you hear me? Yes. Uh, well, thank you very much for inviting me, and <laughs> um, thank you for coming. And uh, I feel rather like the president of the European Court of Human Rights or something like that in this room. <laughs> Uh, but I hope uh, you'll be able to hear me. So uh, just a little background on the paper, which um, came out of the fact that um, some of you will be familiar with the literature on, on the Frankfurt style cases, which seeks to establish conditions for moral responsibility for action and denies a principle that had been accepted a long time uh, the, in the paper that Frankfurt wrote in 1969, uh, and the principle was the uh, so-called principle of alternative possibilities that says that an agent is morally responsible for what he does only if he could have acted otherwise than other than he did. And Frankfurt in that paper argued against it by giving a counterexample to the paper. And I had been reading a few of these papers for a variety of reasons and kept feeling a little bit dissatisfied with the notion of agency that was often implicit there. Um, so I wrote a paper where I tried to say something about what I thought was wrong with the conception of agency and uh, that I published in 2009 and I still feel uh, that I haven't quite got the conception of agency right so this is an attempt to try to develop that. So in the theory of action human agency is often characterized in terms of intention and in ter intention in terms of reasons. Accordingly, there is agency when and only when something is done intentionally, which in turn requires that it should be done for a reason. And I want to propose an alternative way of characterizing human agency in terms of the concept of a two-way power. This conception, I think, helps to see how human agency is an extension of the agency that is found throughout the natural world, both among animate and inanimate things, even though perhaps it's a special case of this of agency. So let me start with a couple of preliminary points. First, my concern is to understand individual human agency. So I won't be talking about non-human agents and shall only be concerned with the agency of individual human beings and not that of groups. So when I talk about agency in this paper, I will refer mainly to individual human agency. Uh, another preliminary point, which has often been noted, but I think bears repeating, is that although agency very often involves doing something, the reverse doesn't hold. In general, the verb do is not a reliable indicator of human agency, even when its grammatical uh, subject refers to a human being, because do is often used to talk about what happens to one or to personal agency, for example. We might, you know, things like fainting, falling asleep, digesting food, turning sugar into fat, having one's hair cut, are all things that we can be said to do, but they are not actions or not our actions. 
Uh, there are instances of things that happen to us or being, are being done to us or of actions or doings that are properly attributed to subpersonal systems such as the digestive system and so on. So we can ask the question, which of the things that we are set to do are instances of our agency? And I shall argue that there is human agency whenever there is uh, the exercise of a distinctive kind of power, namely a two-way power. I think the term two-way power is medieval, but the concept is Aristotelian. Aristotle talks about two-way powers or capacities and contrasts them with one-way powers. Uh, roughly, the, the latter are characterized by the fact that when the conditions for the manifestation of the power obtained, the power is necessarily manifested. But this is not so with two-way powers, where even when the conditions for the manifestation obtained, the power needn't be manifested. And as we shall see later, whether the power is manifested or exercised depends on the agent whose power it is. So the idea that the power of agency is a two-way power is ancient. It goes back to Aristotle, but it's also controversial. And in this paper, I try to offer a sketch or, and defense of this way of characterizing human agency. Uh, the paper is divided in two parts. In the first part, I explore a range of different things that we do that can be prima facie instances of agency. I'll suggest that those things we do are instances of agency when they involve the exercise of two-way power. And in the second part, I try to elaborate and defend this idea that the human capacity for agency can be understood in terms of that concept. Uh, the, the paper is really a sketch rather than a full and detailed defense of this position, but my aim is to show at least that this is a plausible conception of human agency. Our power of agency is perhaps more, most clearly manifested when we exercise our causal powers, that is, our capacity to cause changes. In those cases, uh, the exercise of the power of agency consists in the causing of a change by us, who are the agents. We cause the change, and our causing the change is our acting. Now, what sorts of things do we cause when we exercise our causal powers? Well, we cause events to happen, as well as processes to unfold and to change, and states to obtain. And we also cause objects to begin or to cease to exist. And we do that, for example, when we press a button, or spin a top, or spin it faster, or when we dry the dishes, when we paint a picture, when we crack a nut, and when we burn down a house. But although we can be set to cause things in all those categories, Causing any of them, I think, involves causing events for the initiation of a process or the causing of a change within it, the obtaining of a state and the objects and objects beginning or ceasing to exist are events, events by causing which we cause those other things, processes, states and so on. Um, now I want to turn to the question of how we cause those changes, those events, when we exercise our causal powers. Well, the most common and I think uncontroversial way in which we do so is by moving our bodies. This is true because moving our bodies is itself exercising a causal power and because many of the changes that we cause, apart from the movements of our bodies, we cause by moving our bodies. For example, we can change a position, uh, change, sorry, we can cause a change in the position of a door uh, precisely by moving our limbs. But it seems that we can also cause changes without moving our bodies. For example, we can cause offense 
by not greeting someone or cause a death by not feeding someone and so on. Now, it's possible to reject this suggestion on the grounds that these are not genuine causal claims, but that seems plausible only if genuine causal claims are thought to relate only events or at any rate particulars. For if I say that I caused someone offence by not greeting them, my not greeting them is not a particular. So it's true that this claim does not relate to particulars. But that view, that causal claims only are genuine when they relate particulars, seems unduly restrictive. Some causal claims are causal explanatory claims. They don't state relations uh, between particulars, but they still identify causal factors that contribute to the explanation of an event. And sometimes an agent's not doing something is such a causal factor. The conditions under which someone can be said to have caused an event through a not doing are complex, I think, because they involve um, issues about explanatory salience, duties, roles, normative expectations generally, as well as counterfactuals concerning what would have happened if the agent had done what she failed to do, among other things. But when the conditions are met, these are cases where a change is caused, say, a hamster's death, by an agent exercising her agential power, e.g. by not feeding it. A note that it's not necessary that the not doing or the causing be intentional. I may forget to feed the hamster and thus cause its death unintentionally. So it is possible to cause an event by not doing something, and this appears to suggest that instances of not doing something can also themselves be instances of agency. And is that right? Um, well, a not doing is simply the negation of a doing. For every kind of doing, there is a corresponding kind of not doing, the negation of the action kind, which implies the absence of any particular action of the corresponding kind. Examples of actions and their corresponding negations are uttering a word and not uttering a word, giving a present and not giving a present, going for a walk and not going for a walk, etc. The term used to describe the not doing need not be negative. For example, keeping silent is a not doing because it consists in not doing something, namely not uttering any sound, even though the, the term keeping silent doesn't involve a negation. And it seems that instances of not doing can be instances of agency, although whether we should call them actions is a separate issue, which I talk about in the printed version, but I won't address uh, right now. Instead, I'll move to other instances of agency, which are not covered by the two cases I've just mentioned. So we have uh, cases of preventing and allowing, as well as enabling and sustaining events, processes and states. They also seem to be possible instance of agency, but they don't consist in causing an event, although they are all related in different ways to the occurrence or non-occurrence of an event of some kind. For instance, I can prevent a paper from flying away by holding it down, and that's uh, a doing that is not causing a change, it is preventing a change by doing something, holding the paper down. And I can also prevent a change by not doing something. For example, if I'm standing in front of a laser beam mechanism that keeps a door open. And similarly, I can keep the water flowing by holding a lid up, which is sustaining by doing, allow a bird to fly out of a cage by not closing its door, allow by not doing, and an ambassador may prevent a diplomatic incident by keeping quiet when provoked, preventing by not doing. 
Though they might, here it might be said that the not doing requires a decision to keep quiet, in which case perhaps it would be a preventing by not doing. But as you can see, there are all sorts of combinations of these possibilities. And as well as these examples of agency, there are uh, so-called mental acts, such as making a calculation on, in one's head or trying to recall the time of a meeting. These seem to be instances of agency, but they don't consist in causing, preventing, sustaining, etc., change. So they don't seem to be, uh, although they are instances of agency, they don't seem to be exercises of causal powers. It may be thought that since when we perform mental acts, we cause events in our brains, mental acts are themselves also exercises of causal powers. But that doesn't seem right, for even if we cause those events, the mental acts themselves don't consist in the causing of those events in the brain. Sorry, in the brain. And this is so even if one thinks that a mental act is identical to some brain event, since we don't typically cause our mental acts. So mental acts also seem instances of agency that need, don't seem to be, at least typically, instances of causing a change. So we have seen that although perhaps the paradigmatic case of agency is uh, when we exercise the causal power that we have to move our bodies and thus cause changes, there are other instances of agency which differ, differ from the paradigm. There are not doings and then uh, the possibility of preventing, allowing, and mental acts, and so on. And then the question arises, which uh, do these, sorry, what do they have in common with this paradigmatic case of moving one's body, so that it seems right to say that these are all instances of agency. So my suggestion is that these are instances of agency when they are exercises of a two-way power, or are something done by exercising a two-way power. So my opening a door is an instance of agency when it's an exercise of my two-way power to do so. That is, when it is in my power to open the door or not to do so. And similarly, my not greeting someone is an instance of my agency when it is an exercise of a two-way power. And this brings me to the second part of the paper where I shall try to say more about this concept of a two-way power and try to defend the claim that it provides a plausible and illuminating way of characterizing human agency. So I've claimed that human agency requires the exercise of a two-way power, and have said this that the idea goes back to Aristotle, who in the Nicomachean Ethics says that where it is in our power to act, it is also in our power not to act. Uh, to understand this idea of uh, two-way power, uh, we need to say something about this notion of possibility that is involved in, in its use. And here I follow Anthony Kenny in holding that the relevant possibility is that of ability and opportunity. So an agent A has, at a particular time, the two-way power to phi and not to phi at that time, only if, sorry, has a two-way power to phi at that time, if and only if, at that time, A has the ability to phi and the ability not to phi, and also the opportunity not to phi, and the, sorry, the opportunity to phi and the opportunity not to phi. So you must have both ability and opportunity to do it and not to do it at the time. Kenny explains the difference between ability and opportunity in a way which is not, uh, as it were, um, it's slightly loose, but perhaps will do for our purposes. He says, an ability is something internal to the agent, and an opportunity is something external. But it's difficult to make this intuitive 
truth more precise. The boundary between internal and external here is not to be drawn simply by reference to the agent's body. For illness, no less than imprisonment, may take away the possibility of exercising my abilities without necessarily taking away the abilities themselves. Now, the ability to do something, say, for example, cook omelettes, is something that if I have it, I also have it when I'm not exercising it, and even if I rarely exercise it, though, of course, I can exercise that ability only when the circumstances permit me to do so, for example, when I have eggs, a frying pan, etc. That much seems true of all abilities. However, for me to have the two-way power to cook omelettes at any given time, I need to have the ability and the opportunity to cook omelettes at that time, and it must be also up to me whether I exercise the ability at that time. That is, it must be up to me whether or not I cook omelettes at that time. So consider, consider by contrast the capacity that we have to hear certain sounds. This is a capacity that I can exercise only, or I can manifest only when the right conditions uh, obtain. So, for example, when there isn't interference, where my organs are well-functioning and so on. But it's not a capacity whose exercise is up to me. If the conditions are right, I will hear the sound. Of course, I, can, I, I may be able to alter the conditions. I can stop my ears with my fingers so that I won't hear the sound. But if the conditions are right, then I will hear it. And that's why we, the power to hear sounds is not a two-way power. So our two-way powers involve abilities such that when the opportunity to exercise them is present, it is up to us whether we exercise them or not. If at time t, A has the ability to phi and the ability not to phi, and has the opportunity to phi and the opportunity not to phi, then it must be up to A whether she phis or not at that time. For suppose that if it were, sorry, for suppose that it were not up to A whether she fights at that time, then something else would determine whether she does. And suppose that something does determine that she fights at that time. In that case, it wouldn't have been true that she had the opportunity not to fight at T, since the thing that determines that she fights at T would have prevented her from not fighting at that time. That's why two-way powers are such that the agent who has the power decides or chooses, determines whether the, she exercises the relevant ability, that is, whether she fights or not at T. That's also why two-way powers cannot be analyzed as a conjunction of two one-way powers. For one-way powers, as we said earlier, are characterized by the fact that when the conditions for their manifestation obtain, the power will necessarily be manifested. But if an agent has both the ability and the opportunity to do something and not to do it at a particular time, and if this were the conjunction of two one-way powers, then the agent would both do that thing and not do it at the time. But that's impossible. And that's why if the power is genuinely a two-way power, whether the, the agent exercises the ability or not, whether she fights or not at the time, must be up to the agent. Now, since having a two-way power requires that the exercise of the corresponding ability should be up to the agent, it seems to follow that the exercise of a two-way power requires some kind of epistemic or psychological condition for the required control over the relevant ability 
seems impossible without knowledge or at least appropriate beliefs. The precise nature of this condition may require fine-tuning, and I have to confess that I don't feel I know how to characterize it. Uh, I initially thought that perhaps it should be characterized in terms of uh, being believing that one can, that one is able to do the thing that one has the ability to do. Uh, I'm not convinced that this is right, perhaps for the exercise of a two-way power to be up to me. What I need is awareness of what I'm doing or what I'm trying to do. But I think we need some kind of uh, epistemic uh, psychological condition to have the, the control that two-way powers required. Now, I have said that human agency requires the exercise of a two-way power, but having said that every instance of agency is itself the exercise of a two-way power, because sometimes what we do is an instance of agency uh, because it is something done by exercising a two-way power. For instance, suppose that, uh, as one does in philosophy papers, I unwittingly start a war by deliberately pressing a button. Surely both pressing the button and starting a war are instances of my agency. The difference is that one is intentional, intentional while the other is unintentional. I don't realize I'm doing it. However, since I wasn't, sorry, because I wasn't aware of the connection between pressing the button and starting the war, I didn't have the two-way power to start the war. It wasn't in my control whether I did it. So this is an instance of agency that is not itself the exercise of a two-way power. And that seems right, because starting the war is my agency because it's something I do by exercising a two-way power that I'd had, namely the two-way power to press the button. So starting the war, the war, although it's something I did, it's not something that I was aware I was doing or trying to do. So it wasn't itself the exercise of a two-way power. Now, although this view that acting is exercising this two-way power is old and familiar, it is thought to be problematic by some and untenable by others. For example, it has seemed to many that the scientific picture of the world implies that agency is never the exercise of a two-way power. Or it has seemed to other people that there are many cases of human agency that don't involve the exercise of a two-way power, and therefore that that cannot be what is distinctive about agency. So one might say Aristotle's claim that where it is in our power to act, it's also in our power not to act must be false. So uh, I want to examine what I regard some of the major objections uh, to this view in the following sections. And I'll start with this uh, very um, general objection which concerns the idea of uh, the scientific picture of the world, the world I, with determinism. The objection goes as follows. The claim that every instance of human agency is the exercise of a two-way power implies that determinism is false. So, if determinism is true, then no instance of agency is the exercise of a two-way power. There cannot be any two-way powers. But since we do, sorry, since we don't know whether determinism is true, but we know that there is human agency, agency cannot be the exercise of a two-way power. I think I've put this uh, in the handout as, you know, three um, premises. If determinism is true, then there are no two-way powers. 
determinism may be true. There is agency, so agency is not the exercise of a two-way power. Well, there are two responses that one could make to this objection. Uh, one is to turn the objection on, on its head and say that if the idea that agency is the exercise of a two-way power implies that determinism is false, then since we know that there is such agency, determinism must be false. Um, that's one position one could take and say uh, that we are capable of settling the question that, of whether determinism is true or not just by accepting that agency has this character. The second response is to deny the first premise, to deny the idea that determinism is incompatible with the existence of two-way powers. There are, as you know, many different compatibilist positions, uh, some of which uh, are not helpful for what the view I'm trying to defend, because on those compatibilist positions, uh, they don't really retain the notion of a two-way power uh, where the capacity to act is really up to the agent. So those uh, positions, those compatibilist positions that give conditional and perhaps also dispositional analysis of an agent's powers are not helpful for my purposes because on them uh, it doesn't seem true that at the time of acting it was in the agent's power to act and also in his power not to act. That's because on those views the agent's ability to act other than she does is seen as depending on conditions that are not present when she acts and whose presence is not under the agent's control either. However, there are other compatibilist positions that retain a genuine non-conditional notion of two-way power. I mean, genuine in the sense that I'm interested here. These compatibilist positions argue that an agent's having the power to act and not to act at the time is consistent with the claim that the laws that govern the physical world are deterministic and that the idea that the past cannot be changed. And they do so, for example, by pointing out that arguments to the contrary, such as the uh, consequence argument, depend on equivocation between different notions, different kinds of possibility. For example, between physical possibility and agential possibility. Now, it's not necessary for my purposes here to choose between these two responses. I actually find both responses plausible somehow. Um, and I don't... Um, because what they jointly show is that uh, it is not, uh, sorry, what the response that um, says that the determinism must be false and the compatibilist position uh, jointly show is that the claim that the possibility of determinism undermines the idea that agency could be the exercise of a two-way power is at the very least inconclusive. But it may be thought that there are grounds other than determinism for rejecting the, the view that agency requires the exercise of a two-way power. For there may seem to be instances of human agency that don't involve the exercise of, this, of such a power. And among others, the following have been advanced. Uh, cases such as reflex actions and reactions, for example, involuntary movements such as kicks uh, or recoiling in disgust, actions done under hypnosis, somnambulistic actions, and more generally, adjustments that we make during sleep, some spontaneous expressions of emotion, or things done under duress, for example, under threats of violence and so on, 
actions that are the result of psychological necessity, whether this is the result of a pathology, such as addiction or obsessive compulsive behavior, or uh, compulsion which comes from one's character or volitional necessities. Uh, Luther is often given as one of the sort of uh, illustrative cases of this kind of necessity. And in addition, as I said at the very beginning, there are the so-called Frankfurt-style cases and related Fisher-style cases, which uh, also suggest that there are cases of agency where it's not true uh, that there, there is this two-way power. Well, I've discussed many of these cases elsewhere. Uh, in particular, the Frankfurt-style cases, uh, in that paper I mentioned uh, about uh, alternative possibilities and thought experiments. Um, I can't summarize the whole, my whole argument there, but what perhaps what I want to emphasize here is that I think that many of the Frankfurt-style examples depend on what seems a question-begging or at least very problematic notion of what it is to choose or decide to act. For example, as something that can be caused merely by causing a brain event. So here's an example from uh, a book by Dirk Perebon called Living Without Free Will, where he's describing one of these Frankfurt style cases. And he says that uh, this is one where the agent is deciding whether he should uh, evade tax, paying taxes or not. And Perebon says, but to ensure that he, the agent, chooses to evade taxes, a neuroscientist implants now a device in his brain which, were it to sense a moral reason occurring with the specified force, the force that would make the agent not choose to evade taxes. So if this uh, implant detects such a moral reason, it would electronically stimulate his brain so that he would choose to evade taxes. So this seems to me a very problematic conception of what choosing is, the idea that, you know, something that can be caused just by causing uh, a brain event. And other cases uh, seem to depend on an implicit idea that uh, manipulating the agent's brain perhaps is not causing a decision and so on, but is causing the agent, as it were, to move. But the idea really is that the manipulation of the brain causes motions of the body, for example, will cause the finger to move uh, in such a way that the gun is fired. But, and the problem is that causing that is not causing the agent to move, and has, hence is not causing him to act. It's just causing maybe his body to move in exactly the same way as it would move when she would perform an action of that kind. Now, of course, there's much more to say about this, and I'm happy to discuss these and other cases in, in the question section, but I want to uh, move to some of the other difficulties. So some of the cases that I mentioned earlier, those cases where we do things that we seem generally not able to avoid. Uh, this includes um, reflex actions, for example, kicking when tapped on the knee, and reactions like blinking or ducking to avoid a flying object and some other such things. Now, I th some of them, you know, are different in detail, but what seems true of these kinds of doings is that uh, we are said 
to be able to be unable to avoid doing them to the extent that we are not aware that we we are doing them so in these cases uh, our awareness of what uh, awareness of what is doing does not operate at a personal level but at a subpersonal level and because of that it seems plausible to argue that those actions those doings are generally properly attributable to the agency of these subpersonal systems. It is true that we can bring them to the, sub, to the personal level and then we can, to that extent, control uh, some of them. We can suppress or control them. Uh, but we might say that the, these types of doing uh, belong in a continuum. Sometimes they are totally below personal awareness and not within our control and more properly attributed to those subpersonal systems. Sometimes we become aware of them, we bring them to the personal attention and then we become capable of uh, suppressing them. And they will seem closer to one or the other of these uh, ends of the continuum precisely to the extent to which we are able to control when they happen, suppress them if we choose and generally uh, bring them under our control that is to the extent to which doing them is the exercise of a two-way power. There are other cases, but I want to focus now on the idea that when we act under duress, for example, under threat and so on, uh, we are also unable to avoid doing what we do. So by contrast to the cases just mentioned, cases of acting under duress, for example, under threat, are, I contend, cases where the agent retains the ability and opportunity to refrain from doing what he does, even though the cost of doing so is often very high and often such that one needn't pay it, or perhaps even should not pay it. These cases work by coercing, sorry, coercing the agent to choose an alternative that he would rather not choose, but the agent still chooses what to do, albeit under duress. But perhaps it might be said, are in the cases of extreme violence where agents in those conditions don't seem to retain the ability to refrain from doing what they do, for example, sign a conf confession or reveal a name. Well, I think what's problematic about the question whether an agent could have refrained from doing such things in the face of pain, terror and so on, is that we have no independent way of measuring an agent's ability to withstand uh, such things other than whether they did it. In, some, in circumstances of this kind, we can say that one agent resists, perhaps even dies resisting, while another gives in. And does that show that the first had, but the second lack the ability to resist? Well, I think all that we can say is that the second didn't resist, perhaps even though he tried very hard. But we often declare ourselves unable to do things that we are patently able to do. For example, we say that we couldn't resist telling a joke when we could clearly have done so, but chose not to. Or by contrast, that we felt an irresistible urge to do something, but suppressed it. So again, I don't think that these are cases, these cases are, it is clear that in these cases, uh, the, sorry, that these are clear counterexamples to the view uh, that agency is the exercise of a two-way power, because it's not clear that agents lack the ability not to do what they did. There are different cases, for example, the examples that are given of com com obsessive compulsive disorders and addictive behavior. 
for example, drug addicts, uh, alcoholics, kleptomaniacs, compulsive hand washers, and so on. These are often put forward as well as cases where agents cannot refrain from doing what they do. But this, I think, in the relevant sense that concerns us here, uh, that of ability and opportunity, doesn't seem true. The claim that these agents lack the ability to refrain depends on the idea that their desires to engage in the relevant act actions are irresistible. But again, in the absence of a measure of an agent's ability to resist particular desires, other than whether they resist them, I think these claims are, should be construed to express not an inability to refrain, but rather the difficulty in refraining, given the intensity of the sensations that accompany the desire, withdrawal symptoms, the memory of the pleasure, uh, relief in engaging in the activity, and sometimes the lack of effective contrary motivation to do so. It's worth noting that uh, inveterate addicts of all sorts sometimes give up on their addiction from one day to the next, as it were, perhaps as a result of a clearer realization of the extent and implications for themselves and for others of the addiction. And it is also worth noting that agents who display obsessive compulsive behavior often show high levels of control, attention to detail, avoidance of risk, careful planning. They will desist from the action if the circumstances require it, for example, if they think they are going to be caught, if they are kleptomaniacs and so on, uh, which suggests that they have the ability to refrain from doing what they do and will do so if they see reason, perhaps within their pathology, to do so. And moreover, these, patients, these people who suffer from these conditions are often treated with behavioral therapies that depend on their gradual habituation to refraining from the behavior. But if they lacked the ability to refrain, how could, how could the therapy begin? Now, the final example I want to discuss along these lines is uh, what Bernard Williams calls moral incapacities, where an agent is said to be morally incapable to, of doing certain things. And also, relatedly, the so-called volitional capacities, uh, sorry, volitional necessities. And the common example is uh, Luther saying, here I stand, I can do no other, which um, apparently he never said, because uh, Wikipedia tells us that uh, what he said is, uh, I cannot and will not recant uh, because it is not right nor um, because one shouldn't act with, against one's conscience. And uh, the, the, the words here, I stand, I can do no other, apparently were added later. Uh, nobody knows by whom. At least that's what Wikipedia says. But anyway, that doesn't matter. The point is that you know there is a sense in which um, Luther was supposed to not have been able to uh, recant from his opinions. Now. Do these cases really present a difficulty to this conception of agency? Well, consider first moral incapacities. If an agent is indeed, as William says, morally unable to do something, then it's true that it's not in her power to do it or not to do it. That is, it's not up to her whether she does it or not. But if that is so, if there are indeed such moral incapacities, these wouldn't seem objections to this account, unless we insist that in those cases, the agents not doing those things are also instances of their agency. But why should we so insist when we don't insist, for example, that 
my not flying unaided, which is something I cannot do, is an instance of agency. It's not within my control either. In any case, I think it's questionable that at least some of the examples often given of these volitional necessities uh, are indeed cases of inability in the sense relevant here. On the one hand, you know, cases such as Luther's, it seems that where he said, uh, where he thought he couldn't uh, recant, uh, they seem cases where the right description seems to be that the agent chooses to act and regards the alternative as an, acceptable, an unacceptable choice, morally or for some other reason. For there seems to be no more reason to think that Luther had no ability to recant. He clearly had the opportunity, that's what he was being given. Uh, so there is no more reason to think that Luther had no ability to recant rather than that he chose not to do so because it would go against his conscience than there is to think that a relative who says that they cannot, for example, put you up for the night has no ability to do so rather than that they could but choose not to because perhaps it would great, cause them a great deal of inconvenience. But it might be thought there are still cases where it seems that the agent really cannot refrain uh, an example that is given sometimes is a mother who is unable to refrain from rushing into a burning house to save her children. Uh, she cannot stop herself from doing that. But suppose that the mother is told that she's about to do that by, run that by running into the house, she'd make it more likely that her children will die. Surely she will, she will then refrain, not rush in. This, I think, shows that she had the ability and opportunity to refrain what she didn't have before, but would have after being so informed, is the motivation to refrain from rushing into the house. Now, some philosophers reject this contention just made because they say, well, perhaps it's true that had the agent had different motives, she could have refrained. But this doesn't show that given the motives or reasons that she had, that she actually had, she could have refrained. However, I think this misrepresents the contention for it treats motives, reasons, etc., as conditions for the ability to refrain from doing something. But the idea that refraining from doing something requires different motivations, which I was suggesting, should not be understood as the idea that these motivations are part of the conditions for the ability to refrain or part of the circumstances that present an opportunity to do so. Of course, if the ability to act or not to act was conditional on the motivation, then the absence of the relevant motivation would imply the absence of the ability. But the claim is that the right motivations are conditions not for the possession of the ability, but for the exercise. They would explain why the agent does such a thing. Perhaps uh, part of the disagreement here depends on invoking different notions of possibility. For my opponents may concede that the agents in question have the abilities and opportunities uh, that I say they have, but they may claim that still these agents are psychologically incapable of uh, doing what they do given their motivations. But for the reasons about uh, the claims to do with the strength of desires and motives generally that I outlined earlier, I think these claims should be construed as the idea that what they needed were different motivations to act differently rather than to be able to act differently. And that would still be consistent with the claim that in acting they were exercising a two-way power. So in short, I 
want to say that in these alleged counterexamples, they are cases where the doings are not our actions, but those of subpersonal systems, or where it's not true that the agent lacked the ability and opportunity to refrain. And his having that is what is required for this account of agency. I had another example, but I'm not going to read it, I think. Uh, so I will conclude just saying that uh, I have proposed and tried to defend a conception of human agency as the exercise of a two-way power and have claimed that such a conception enables us to accommodate a whole range of doings and not doings that we seem inclined to characterize as instances of agency. This suggestion is, as we have seen, linked to the idea that what we do is up to us. Perhaps because of this idea that it's up to us, people who have defended similar views have presented these, those accounts as accounts of free action. But I think the conditions for agency that I have tried to, that I have given, provide only a necessary condition for free agency, not a sufficient one for at least on some very plausible conception of what it is to act freely, many exercises of two-way powers are not free, for they are constrained, perhaps because they are done uh, because of coercion or obligation or because of some psychological disorders. And it's true that whether someone's agency is so constrained is a fact that will affect the extent to which we think the agent is morally responsible for what he does or fails to do, and also for the consequences of those things. However, when, how and to what extent, and why different factors that affect freedom of agency and the corresponding moral responsibility are set to do so, are very complex questions that I haven't tried to address in this paper. Thank you.